Well, good morning. We're going to continue in uh, Genesis 14, if you'll look with me. Genesis 14 and verse 17 and following. After his, the his there being Abram, after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon it. Father, we ask that as we consider your word together, that your spirit would give us understanding, not only intellectual understanding so that we properly apprehend what's being taught here, but that you would transform our hearts so that we would trust more in Christ Look more to him and honor your name. We pray that we would understand the lesson that Abram learned here, the blessing he received and how you strengthened him with grace to face worldly temptation. We pray that you would strengthen us likewise this Lord's day as we start our week, that we would be strengthened to face the various temptations of the world by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. As you all know, because you've probably all participated in it, one can be blessed by the Lord in a variety of ways and then pat themselves on the back and accept worldly accolades and, and if you will, treasures for that. You kind of easily slip into the mindset of, You know, I deserve this. I did the right thing. I worked hard. It's my due. Children, you children know what this looks like, especially from sports. And I'm thinking, like, oh, looking at you, Hudson, who you love football, I know. So you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. In a victorious moment in sports, you'll see the victorious athlete Pound his own chest. Right? We all know that he just did something fantastic. And he wants everyone to know that it was him. He has no sense that this victory is from the Lord, as is every ounce of his talent from the Lord. No sense of that at all. You, you'll see it today, um, depending on your view on the Lord's day. 
millions of Americans will likely see this happen in the Super Bowl today. And, and think of the moment, friends. Gr grown men are playing a children's game for millions of dollars in pay. And in a great moment of athletic achievement, they, many, will pound their chests and dance around like some kind of self-congratulatory fools. But this is not limited to children's sports, nor to adults playing children's games for lots of money. I could say the same about business and financial success, couldn't I? Or about academic success. You might not pound your chest physically after receiving an A. That would be odd. Look at me, right? You, you probably aren't going to do that. But you may do so metaphorically, if you will. You might keep all the spoils and accolades of success for yourself. You could also do that with marriage. Like, let's say your marriage is just easier by God's common grace than those around you. You know, some marriages are that way. I, you know, we, I often see on TV, marriage is hard. Uh, you know, I just saw that recently, and I thought, eh, you know, my marriage hasn't been hard. Not because my wife and I are particularly amazing people, but by God's common grace, for whatever reason, it's been sort of easy for us. But you could... Look around at your neighbors who are having a more difficult time in marriage and think, man, if only you had it together like we do. Or you could see children that are naturally more obedient. You guys have seen them. There are some children who are just naturally obedient. Just naturally obedient. They, they love to follow the rules. Often they become teachers because they love to impose the rules on others too, Right? But they, they're just natural rule followers. And you could be like, well, look at how well we raised our children. And look at that rebellious kid over there. What is wrong with those people? If only they parented like we parent. It can be easy to attribute all of that to yourself and what you did rather than seeing it as the gift of God. Now, I'm not denying. Please don't hear me. I'm not denying that the Lord works through means. Like hard work and wise decision-making and biblical parenting and following the Lord with regard to your marriage. I'm not denying that he works those means. I am saying that ultimately, everything comes from him. Everything. We can so easily forget that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. We did not create ourselves. We don't even provide for ourselves. Every time you take a breath, I've had you do this before, just stop, take a breath. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. He doesn't have to keep giving you every breath you take. Every time your heart beats, it's a gift from God. Every time your ear makes out the sound of the words from someone else's mouth. And then you pick up the concept they're communicating with those sounds, and what that was in their mind is now in your mind. Think about that for a minute. Language is amazing. Gift from God. Gift from God. 
every time you take a bite of food, it's God's gift to you. Every time you wake up in the morning and go to sleep at night, every time you learn something new or achieve something new, it's all a gift of God. He did all that. Yet it's so easy to forget that God promises to care for his people. And then it's easier to, after that to become anxious and to sort of claw after all the goods you can store up to make sure you're secure for the future. Again, I'm not saying don't be wise in savings and building up a retirement or anything like that. I'm saying don't trust in your riches. Don't trust in them. But it's a near constant temptation. It's a near constant temptation to trust in ourselves and the riches that we store up in whatever area that might be. In our text today, Abram, which we know becomes named in Genesis 17, Abraham. Abram is provided a temptation to trust in himself and the wealth he accumulated by a wicked king. He's provided a temptation to that. But before Abram is tempted in that way, what we see in our text today is that the Lord graciously sends this godly priest king to encourage Abram in his faith, to strengthen and encourage him, to strengthen him and encourage him in his faith prior to the temptation coming. So that's what we're going to look at in the order of the text today. First, we're going to see the godly priest king who was sent to encourage or strengthen Abram in his faith. We'll see that in verses 17 through 20. So Genesis 14, 17 to 20, this godly priest king who was sent to strengthen Abram in his faith. And second, we'll see the wicked king who tempted Abram to trust in himself in verses 21 through 24. It's real simple. The king who came and strengthened Abram and the king who came and tempted Abram. So let's look first at the priest king sent to encourage Abram. Now, as, as we look at verse 17, just before we pick it up, if you notice there the first three words, after his return from the defeat of Ketelamur and the kings who were with him, we understand we're picking up um, the continuation of a story. And the story is that Abram was now living in the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised him, and there were enemy nations who lived in that land as well. And nine different nations went to war. Five against four, if you will. And those nations were led by their respective kings. Last week, Russell called them pirates. And I just in the back going to say, I am matey, the whole sermon, every time he said that. But he called them pirates. But what he meant is this kind of local warlords. When you think about a king of a nation, don't think the king of England. Think um, the king of a more tribal-sized people group, if you will. Um, and so... They're led by these respective kings, and the war went poorly for some of the family of Abram. What we mean by that is um, some of Abraham, Abram's family, namely Lot and his family, lived in the land of Sodom. And Sodom was conquered by the other kings, and Lot and his family and all the possessions of Sodom were taken by these enemy kings. Look, look if you will, at Chapter 14, verse 10. 
chapter 14, verse 10. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, you'll hear about those kings later in Genesis 18 again, or those places. As the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, into those pits, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was, in other words, Abram's nephew, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So when Abram heard of this, he heard that his own family, uh, members of, of his own family who he felt responsibility for, were carried off with all their possessions and all the possessions of Sodom, Abram decided to intervene. He gathered a a fighting force, a small army, if you will, and went to rescue his family. So look at verse 13 of chapter 14. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So this is our context. Abram's now returning from from the defeat of Ketelamur and the kings, who were with them, the king of, notice this, after that, verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh, that is the king's valley. So Abram returns with all the goods and the people who had been captured. And the king of Sodom, from whom they were taken, came to meet Abram in the valley. Now what we expect to read next is how Abram, and the king of Sodom worked out the situation regarding the possessions and the people. That's what we expect to come next. Abram went and conquered those kings, took back Lot and his family and Lot's family's possessions, and took all of Sodom and Gomorrah's possessions back. And so he had them, and so here comes the king of Sodom to meet Abram in the valley. And what we expect to hear, very, the very next thing is that the king of Sodom and Abram worked out what was going to happen with the possessions and the people. But that's not the next thing that happens in the text. We get this interruption, and the interruption is intentional. What's the interruption? Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. This is a fascinating interruption. Who is this king of Salem? He seems to come out of nowhere. Well, if you don't know, Salem is a reference to Jerusalem, the city of peace. So we have the sudden appearance. I want you to catch this. We have the sudden appearance of this king from Jerusalem, the city of peace. And his name is Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. We're also told that he was not just a king, but a priest. He was priest of God Most High. 
In other words, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he came with bread and wine in his hands. Abram, who here represents God's people, I want you to catch what's happening. Abram, who here represents God's people or the church at this point in the Old Testament, is approached by this priest king of righteousness and peace who comes from Jerusalem, the city of God, with bread and wine in his hand. He has come with bread and wine to celebrate a kind of king's feast with Abram. Melchizedek has brought out the, if you will, the best food and wine to the table to honor Abram and have a a joyous feast with him. Now, we're given no genealogy in Genesis for Melchizedek, which is odd because the book of Genesis is keen to show you the genealogies of important figures. But we get no genealogy in Genesis for Melchizedek. We also do not know what came of Melchizedek after this scene. He appears, he blesses Abram, and then we never hear about him again. All we have is his appearance. Now, King David, if you remember, Abram's family grows into a nation, the nation of Israel, and eventually they get kings. King David, the man after God's own heart, with whom God covenanted to bring from David's household the Messiah. King David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, picks up the story of Melchizedek to speak of the Messiah. So keep your hand in Genesis 14 and look at Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And I want you to hear what David sings about the coming messianic king. Remember, the Psalms are songs. Let's hear what he sings about the coming messianic king. This is a psalm of David. You notice that little superscript, a psalm of David? The thing right above it, if you have something like, sit at my right hand or something like that, that's not part of the text of Scripture. But that little superscript says a psalm of David is part of the text of Scripture. A psalm of David. In other words, David is the one who sang this. David is the king in Israel singing this. The psalm of David. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai. David's Lord. Yahweh is saying to David's Lord. Now, who could David's Lord be? Given that, David is the Lord in Israel. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, he's talking about this king who will sit at the right hand of Yahweh, whose enemies will be his footstool for his feet. Now go down to verse 4 for the sake of time. The Lord has sworn... Yahweh has sworn, has given an oath, has made a covenant promise, and will not change his mind. He cannot change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this one whom David calls the Lord is also the same one whom the Lord has said, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord, the coming messianic king is who he's referring to, will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you don't know this already, Psalm 10, particularly verse 1 and verse 4, 
are the most, is, if you will, the most quoted psalm and the most quoted Old Testament text in the whole of the New Testament. Some scholars argue the entire book of Hebrews is a sermon expositing Psalm 110. The Lord, the coming Messianic king, will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, what David's getting at is the Messianic priest king will not be in the order of the Levitical priests. How did they receive their priesthood? They received their priesthood via genealogy. Aaron passes it down to his son, passes it down to his sons. They're the tribe, the Levites are the tribe of the priests. Rather, rather, this Messiah, this Lord, who is the priest king, he is the priest king by the eternal decree, and to him the Father has covenanted a kingdom, Luke twenty two twenty nine. You have the language, assigned to me a kingdom. The Father assigned to me a kingdom, but actually covenanted to him a kingdom. This makes him so much better than the priests under the Mosaic covenant. And what does Melchizedek do for Abram? What does he do for Abram? Let's look. What does this, if you will, Priest king of righteousness and peace, who's come from the city of God with bread and wine in hand, do for the representative of the people of God. Look at Genesis 14 and verse 19. And he blessed him. And he blessed him. And said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek blesses Abram with a similar blessing that Noah gave to Shem. Abram is blessed by the only God who is, the creator and possessor of heaven and earth. And further, Melchizedek blesses the name of God for keeping his covenant promise to Abram regarding the land. The Lord gave him victory over his enemies in the land. Abram's enemies are cursed, and he, is his, he and his friends are blessed. It's, it's a remarkable passage. A priest king. I just want you to stop and think about it. You're Genesis 14. A priest king. One of righteousness and peace. Appears from Jerusalem with bread and wine in his hand. And blesses Abram, who represents the people of God. And how does Abram respond to that blessing? How does he respond? Look at the end of verse 20, right after the blessing. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. It's what we call the tithe. Abram tithed to him. He gave him a tenth of everything. He recognized that Melchizedek was superior to him, and he'd come, and Melchizedek had come as representative of the Lord. And so he responds with the tithe. He responds with the tenth of everything. Look at Hebrews 7. Keep your hand there. Russell read from this passage this morning. But look at Hebrews 7 and verse 1. You're going to get a comparison now between Melchizedek and Jesus. The author of Hebrews, who I happen to think is the Apostle Paul, not an argument I'm going to make this morning, is commenting upon David's use of Genesis 14 from Psalm 110. Now look what he says. 
for this Melchizedek, Jesus has just been called a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham, uh, sorry, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. We know nothing about where he came from or when he died. But resembling, notice this phrase, resembling the son of God, he continued a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Do you guys just hear that? In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, and the other, tithes are received by him of whom it is testified he lives. In the case of Levitical priests, they're mere men receiving tithes. In the case of the Melchizedekian priest, Jesus, the one who lives eternally receives the tithes. Abram had the promises. Yet Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and, and, and peace, who resembled the son of God, he was not the son of God, he resembled the son of God, was superior to him. How so? Because he represented the Christ in whom is the blessing. Melchizedek was a type of the Christ. And so, as a type of the Christ, he comes and blesses his covenant people in Abram. It's remarkable. It's a remarkable passage. Abram believes and tithes to him. Now, now I want you to understand why we have this interruption. Because it's an interesting interruption in the middle of this scene. Abraham comes back from war. He's won. He's brought back the people and the possessions. The king of Sodom meets him in the valley to talk about those people and possessions. And we have this interruption with this king of righteousness and peace from Jerusalem, who comes with bread and wine in his hand and blesses Abram and the people of God in him. Why do we have this interruption? It's because another test is coming to Abram in the king of Sodom. He's coming to tempt him. And the Lord graciously sent a minister of the gospel, a type of the Christ, to bless and encourage Abram prior to his testing or temptation. Abram, in the face of his breathtaking victory, was about to be tempted. And the Lord graciously intervened to preserve him. The Lord preserves his people. The Lord preserves his people. And here he is doing so. Friends, this is analogous to what the Lord does every Lord's day. 
the Lord's Day. Sunday is the first day of the week. And here comes the minister of Christ and the power of the Spirit of Christ speaking Christ's word of blessing with bread and wine in his hand. Christ, by his Spirit and through his ministers, is coming to announce to you the grace of God, to remind you of covenant obligations, and to show you the sacramental signs of the covenant. He's coming to bless you and to strengthen you to go forward in your week. This is what you reflect upon every Lord's Day, morning and evening. This is also why you get up in the morning. I think it's wise anyway. If you're not, it's wise to get up in the morning each day and read the word and pray. To reflect upon the same every evening. You're remembering that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. You're being reminded that God's mercies are new every morning. You're being encouraged to trust the Lord and give him thanks. You're being exhorted and warned not to grasp after wealth and power and glory and security in some futile attempt to protect and provide for yourself as if you have forgotten that God is always for you. And note how Abram responds to such blessing and kindness from the Lord. He gives a tithe to Melchizedek. He gives a tithe. What is Abram doing? What what he's saying is this. You're the priest king of God most high. And everything I have is from him. So take this tenth part as a token of my acknowledgement that all that I have is really his. I trust the Lord for tomorrow, so I don't need to hold it back at all. And friends, that's what we're doing in an offering. We're giving of our first fruits. I don't speak much about giving here because I don't always run into passages that talk about it. But when I do, here it is. We're acknowledging that everything we have comes from him and belongs to him, and we are cheerfully and generously giving it back to him. And we don't do that because the Lord has need of anything. You understand? The Lord needs nothing. All you have is his already. You're his. He needs nothing from you. We're doing it because we need to thankfully trust in his provision rather than grasp after making it our own. Making it, sorry, on our own. We can even give beyond our means, as we heard with the churches in Macedonia. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, notice the startup. The churches in Macedonia are not going to be charitable because um, Paul said, we want you to know, brothers, about the way I hammered them with the law of God and guilted them into giving. That's not what he's saying. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What's that grace? For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly. Notice, listen, begging us. They were begging us. The church of Macedonia is begging the apostle, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I'm begging earnestly that you would do me the favor of letting me help you. The Reef of the Saints goes on. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. We didn't require them to give beyond their means. They just did. Now, why did the Macedonians do that? What strengthened their hearts in the Lord to enable them to give beyond their means? Well, the grace of God did. The grace of God in Christ did. Listen to what Paul went on to say. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you hear the answer? Jesus, though rich, became poor for your sake, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, this passage becomes an occasion for really bad theology. So I want to be clear. Let me tell you what the point is not. The point is not that the Son of God gave up his deity. That's impossible. Or that he laid down his, all his eternal riches so that he didn't have them anymore. Also impossible. And that somehow he really became diminished in his deity. Impossible. That he somehow was no longer the possessor of all things in heaven and earth. Impossible. The incarnation does not give us ability, right? In other words, the end of Jesus, if you will, the Son of God as, in essence, God. It doesn't de-God God. If it did so, we would not just have Jesus becoming incarnate. We would have the end of all things because the Son of God is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. The point is that the Son of God the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the creator and provider, assumed to himself a poor, helpless human nature, being born in a poor, insignificant human family. He voluntarily put himself under the law according to his manhood and voluntarily suffered and died in that same nature. And because, because Christ assumed our poor, weak, dependent nature, Because of that, he redeemed it. Please hear this. He did not give up his heavenly riches. Rather, he brought them down and bestowed all those riches upon us. Saints, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in him in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're seated with Christ in the heavens, co-heirs with him. He doesn't suffer loss. We receive gain. And it is for this reason that we can cheerfully give even beyond our means. Why? Because we have everything we could ever need, abundantly more than we could hope or imagine in Christ. So we don't need to cling to this world and its possessions. 
Listen to how Matthew Henry, the Puritan author, put it. A lively faith enables a man to look upon the wealth of this world with a holy contempt. Some of you are wealthier than others, but from a global standard, we're all wealthy. I mean, you don't worry about what you're going to eat today. You're at a restaurant laboring over which thing to choose, knowing that another meal is coming three or four hours later, which is a weird thing to labor over, getting all anxious. Which one? It's okay. You're going to eat in like three or four more hours. It'll be fine. You can come back again. You're not somebody on their last meal every time you order from a menu. You know that, right? And you're not going to have to wait three more days to eat. We're wealthy by worldly standards. How many of us look upon the wealth of this world with a holy contempt? We see in it a temptation to sin. A root, if you will, the loving of it being a root of all kinds of evil. He goes on to say this, what are all the ornaments and delights of sense to one that has God and heaven ever in his eye? What is all the wealth of this world to the one who has God and heaven ever in his eye? If God gave you Jesus, you're eternally rich beyond your imagination. Why do you need to grasp after the stuff in the here and now and worry and be anxious about all that? Will such a good God who gave us all things in Christ fail to provide for us day to day? So God sent a priest king of righteousness and peace to bless Abram, to strengthen him. And Abram responds by trusting in the Lord. Next, let's consider the temptation that came Abram's way. Look at, let's look at the wicked king who tempted Abram. This point will come rather quickly. Look at verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand. It's a swearing of an oath. You guys know what it looks like to lift your hand and swear an oath? I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. The Abram had a right to keep the spoils of war. You know that? You conquer, you get to keep the spoils of war. And the king of Sodom offers a kind of bargain to Abram that would turn these events completely on their head. Abram set out to save his family members. He was not seeking wealth. God had already enriched him greatly. He was not some mercenary going to war for payment. And the Lord blessed Abram in his victory. And now the king of Sodom comes and makes an offer that would undermine all of that and turn it all on its head. It's as if the king of Sodom, which you all know Sodom's a wicked kingdom. You know that. It's as if the king of Sodom said, Abram, let me take my people, but you keep all my possessions. As king of Sodom, I want to be magnanimous and grant you all these possessions. 
But Abram took only what was necessary to pay for the war. That's what he says. We'll only take what we've already eaten. And in verse 24, I'm going to take what's necessary to care for those who are my allies in the war. I'm going to make sure their people are resupplied. And that's it. You're going to cover our costs, and you can take everything else. Because Abram had made an oath to the Lord that he would not take anything from Sodom. I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram was not willing to say that the possessions of this wicked king were a blessing from God. Abram was not willing to do any chest pounding in the face of victory, if you will. He was not willing to enrich himself or exalt himself. Nor was he willing to allow a wicked king to receive any glory for the good that God had done. See, we must resist the temptations of Satan, even those that look like blessings. Even those that look like blessings. If those things that appear like blessings cause us to lean on someone other than the Lord himself, resist it. Resist it. I don't know what that looks like in your own life. I don't know your heart. I don't know how the Lord has strengthened you in grace and what he's given you. So you're going to have to make some kind of personal application here. You're going to have to, if you will, know yourself a bit. Ask people around you if you're not sure. Ask your wife and older children, and you'll find out some things you don't want to know. But you, you ought to know the truth about yourself. And if blessings come your way, that you know will cause you to lean on someone other than the Lord himself, then give them away. Give them away. You don't want to begin to trust in your own wealth. That's the point, by the way, that Paul makes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. Paul does not shame rich people in Ephesus for being wealthy at all. He says, as for the rich in this present world, he doesn't say, give it all away so that you're a pauper. He says, as for the rich in this present world, teach them not to be haughty, nor to trust in riches, but in God who generously gives us these things and teach them to be, if you will, charitable, to be ready to share and generous Abram was not willing to enrich himself, nor was Abram willing to exalt himself. If you will, metaphorically, Abram scored an amazing touchdown, and he wasn't going to dance around like a fool and point at himself. And if you will, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, opposite what you're used to hearing. But what we often do, God blesses us with victory, and we snatch defeat right from its jaws by pointing at ourselves, trusting in ourselves. We must resist the temptation of Satan here. Abram was tempted to grasp after the wealth of this world 
rather than trust upon the kindness of the Lord, and Abram responded wisely. He understood that it is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Proverbs 16, 19. Sovereign grace, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Proverbs 16, 16. Friends, you need to understand that not all that glimmers is gold. Let me conclude with the words of Christ. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, now hear this last part. For where your treasure is, here on earth or there in heaven, there your heart will be also. There your heart will be also. Oh, may we have our eyes set on Christ in heaven rather than set upon all that glimmers in this world. And may our hearts be kept safely there with him. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for Christ and the grace that we know in him. The privilege that we have to be counted as your children. We know we have a father who is the possessor of all things in heaven and earth. You've created them all. They're all yours. We know that your son upholds the universe by the word of his power. And yet you've condescended in kindness toward us to save us even though we're sinners. to redeem us, rescue us, restore us in your Son and by the Spirit. We pray that we would cast ourselves upon you, that we would not trust upon, that, that the things of this world that glimmer would not catch our attention, but that we would ever have our eyes set in heaven upon Christ, who is our great reward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.